Welcome to the On the Blue Couch podcast. I'm Kathleen, psychotherapist and host, bringing you information, reflections, and interviews on anything and everything related to therapy. This is episode 30, Trauma and the Walking Dead, part one. Hi all and welcome to this episode 30. Today I am going to talk about the TV show The Walking Dead uh, through the lens of trauma and I hope that this will be a series, um, probably a short one, there will at least be a part two, maybe a part three. Um, I'm going to sit down with another therapist and we're going to talk about season seven, episode one. It's at the time of this podcast, it's airing um, on October 23rd. So that will happen after I share this episode with you. Um, And whether or not you watch The Walking Dead, I think this will be pretty easy to follow. Um, We are focusing on trauma, but I'm going to be using examples um, from different characters and different scenarios and storyline within the show uh, to really help people understand what it means to go through trauma in different kinds of context. So here is the episode I am kind. I'm reloading and reusing, and then um, in the next couple of weeks you'll be hearing um, my conversation with another therapist around the most recent episode. And one more thing, I just want to mention that if you want to be a contributor or you have a question or think that there'd be a great um, episode to include um, or topic, uh, please go to onthebluecouch.com and fill out the form for under "Be a Contributor." Uh, here you go. And I want to start by saying a few things. One is that I will be looking at episodes one through five. So I'm giving you a major spoiler alert right now. I will be talking about events, characters, as it relates to traumatic events and moving into a place of safety and exactly what that can look like and what that can mean. The other thing is in talking about all these traumas, you know, I, I realize that that can bring stuff up for people. And if you're feeling overwhelmed at any time, triggered, uh, just a reminder that you can always stop or pause uh, this podcast and come back to it at a later time if that feels right to you. So in the beginning of the show, we are soon introduced to Rick Grimes, who is one of the main characters and a sheriff's deputy. The beginning of the show, he is shot in the line of duty and ends up in the hospital in a coma. Where everything really begins is when he wakes up from the coma. And he looks around, he's in this hospital room, and he sees that the clock has stopped, his machines are no longer working, and that the flowers on his bedside table are wilted. So clearly time has passed, and it seems like it's even stopped in this moment. So he begins to get oriented and begins to look at what is going on in this hospital. And he starts to see that horrific things and damage has happened. He starts to see that something isn't right, that things are not right. It's silent. It's quiet. And he then finds out that there's this really dark uh, force at first and then encounters zombies 
So zombies have taken over the world. There's some sort of plague or virus of some sort that's transmitted to a human when scratched or bitten by a zombie, and then they become a zombie. So he gets oriented, he goes back to his home, you know, gets supplies, and then goes on the search for his family. And so he eventually does meet up with his family. He finds them in a group of other people that they have been staying with and traveling with and staying safe with. And so this is the core group of people that we start with. And throughout the seasons, people come and go, sometimes through traumatic loss, sometimes through violence, through uh, becoming zombies themselves, through leaving. So we meet all these characters along the way. And this is where we get into, and I think where the discussion is today, around what's the difference between when trauma is in like an act of nature, like a zombie scratch or bite, versus when that bite comes from another human, when interpersonal violence happens. So in this zombie-filled world, zombies are predictably dangerous and the humans are trying to survive them. The zombies walk in this kind of jolted, spastic motion. They look like they're decomposing. They're a shell of who they once were. They are dead inside. And they wander to find a human or animal to eat next. So in season one, the group makes it to the Center for Disease Control, and they meet Dr. Jenner, who is the sole survivor at the CDC. He provides them a place of safety at least for a little bit. And he also provides them with information about what this transition is from being human into that of a zombie. So in season one, the group makes it to the Center for Disease Control, where they meet Dr. Jenner. He's the sole survivor at the CDC and provides them some safety, at least for a little bit. During this time, he tells them about what's been going on in the world and what this parasite or virus or plague is. He starts to show what the transition looks like uh, using an MRI uh, camera of someone who went through the transition from human to zombie. So they actually get to see what happens in the brain. And so Dr. Jenner begins by talking about how a human their brain is intact, all parts of it, is, holds a series of experiences and memories, and that somewhere in there is you, you the person. It's a thing that makes you unique and human. He begins to describe the process by which the brain shuts down, uh, other organs begin to shut down once someone has been bitten or scratched by one of the zombies. He begins to explain that the only thing that is left intact is the brain stem. So the most primitive part is the part that gets these zombies, that resurrects them, gets them up and moving. So the frontal lobes no longer, the neocortex no longer, the human part, the part that makes us able to plan and think and have empathy are no longer there. So he describes it as this, just a shell driven by mindless instinct. And he doesn't quite know what it is, but one of the characters says, or a wrath of God, the question being, really, is this just something that is a force of nature? So this is where we get into the discussion around 
nature versus interpersonal violence and that there is a difference there the impact is different often for people so moving from post-traumatic stress disorder into complex ptsd when we're talking about trauma happening within relationships so going back to that quote by judith herman from her book trauma and recovery which i mentioned in the last episode i'm going to bring up again because it really fits here and psychological trauma, what, how she defines it um, and describes it, is an affiliation of the powerless. Uh, Herman goes on to say, at the moment of trauma, the victim is rendered helpless by overwhelming force. When the force is that of nature, we speak of disasters. When the force is that of other human beings, we speak of atrocities. So traumatic events overwhelm the ordinary systems of care that give people a sense of control, connection, and meaning. So again, this differentiation between the force of nature versus the force of other human beings. And this show is full of a whole range of different kinds of traumas. And really what it becomes is when you have a mindless, soulless uh, zombie that is no longer a person, it has become a force of nature. And therefore, the impact of that is different from then the humans that are still walking around the world. So in this zombie-filled world, uh, the zombies are predictably dangerous. And along the way, we meet all these different characters who come in and out of this really core group led by Rick. This group has to make decisions, quick decisions, around who is safe and who is not. They're needing to constantly scan their environment. They're needing to be vigilant. They're needing to act when required, rather that, you know, whether that be running away, whether that be fighting to defend and protect themselves and the people that they care about. They actually encounter a group along the way of people who really express this idea of either you're a predator or you're the prey. And that's not the way that Rick's group operates, but they do encounter that along the way and it becomes very dangerous. So in season one, we meet a lot of characters and I want to focus on the character of Carol um, and her husband, uh, Ed, and their daughter, Sophia, because it represents as we move into more complex trauma, uh, which can result in complex PTSD. So as you remember in the show, you have this mass exodus of people trying to get out of major cities when it's clear that these zombies, this plague is taking over the world and people have gone into panic and it becomes mayhem. And you see these cars that, you know, bumper to bumper that have tried to get out of their towns. It's now a ghost highway of empty cars that have encountered some sort of threat, some sort of violence. There are people that are no longer in it. Um, they've probably become zombies themselves or escaped. So here we see Carol in this group. She's a you know wife and mother who has joined this group um, that Rick you know also meets back up with that his family is in. And we soon see that her husband is violent and he's violent towards her. He humiliates her in front of the group. He demands things from her. Um, you kind of see her cowering in her uh, relationship with him. She has this ongoing kind of must obey or else there's going to be consequences. And even when she does, you know, 
obey, according to him, um, she can still be hurt. So one thing about this mass exodus and this kind of scattering of people is that people who are in isolation, for their very survival, they have to move into groups. So it's very likely that in this domestic violence um, household that Carol and Sophia uh, are, are living in, that they had to go into connection with others because that's how they were going to survive. Whether or not Ed wanted that, um, they are now in this particular situation. So as you watch Carol in this first season, you see someone who is afraid, who walks around the world constricted and collapsed. Her head is down, her eyes averted whenever Ed is making demands or asking her questions. She says very little. She responds in a way that are short answers uh, because she knows that Ed is dangerous. And at any moment, he can move into a place of violence. He's predictably unpredictable. And he humiliates her in front of the group. He belittles her. He, he has beaten her down psychically, emotionally, physically. This is someone who has become more of his prisoner. He has complete and utter power in this relationship. And so we see other people begin to step up. And the bystanders in this become people who say that's not okay. And in fact, one of the characters, you know, really causes harm and punches Ed multiple times. And we see that Carol really doesn't know what to do with this because this is probably an experience that she hasn't had uh, when she was in isolation in her home, having ongoing abuse towards her and what turns out to be also her daughter, we find out later on. So complex trauma itself are those events that happen over time. It can be months, it can be years. It happens in uh, a relationship where one has you know, a certain amount of power. So it happens within relationship on a continuum. So when we talk about child abuse, that happens within the context of someone who's supposed to take care of you. The very person who cares also hurts. And this has severe, this can have severe and profound effects on a child going through their own brain, body, emotional, spiritual development. So there isn't room to explore the environment. There's an ongoing constriction, doing anything to survive that home. And so when complex trauma happens, there is, of course, the risk of developing complex PTSD. And just some of the things that I've described around Carol are, are some of the things that people experience when we're talking about what complex PTSD can look like. So people can have a sense of helplessness. They may have a paralysis of initiative. There's lots of shame, guilt, and self-blame. Um, there's a lot of isolation that can happen, withdrawal. Uh, relationships themselves can be triggering. So as someone moves into maybe more intimacy with a friend or a romantic partner, that in itself can be can trigger this idea of feeling of danger. So it's it becomes complicated when healing can happen in relationship, 
but relationships can also be places of danger. And so to move into that place of finding help, being able to advocate for oneself, requires moving into a place of safety. So even in this zombie-ridden world, um, you know, we know that Ed transitions into a zombie. He is bitten by one and he becomes one. And for Carol, even with all these zombies out there, that becomes a place of safety for her. And we see her grow. We see her flourish. We see her become this really strong character who actually saves other people in times of extreme danger. She's able to save herself and she's able to save other people around her. So I recently saw the documentary Private Violence. And if you want to learn more about domestic violence, um, violence that happens within relationship, I highly recommend this documentary. Some of what I've described around what we saw with Carol, uh, we see with the women who share their stories uh, in this documentary and the process of what it meant to get out, how our system both can provide justice and also fail people who are trying to get out of dangerous situations. So I just wanted to mention that. So another main character is Carl, who is Rick's son. And it's very clear early on that, you know, he has a pretty secure attachment with both of his parents, that he comes from a loving home, that he has, you know, even in this world of zombies, um, ultimately horrific and scary, that his parents will do anything for him. They'll do anything to protect him. And so he has seen a lot and they can't shelter him from what is going on out there in the world. And he seems to cope really well with it as best he can. He experiences traumatic loss. He experiences abuse by strangers on the road. But all the while, there's always someone there to really be there and comfort him. He's able to accept that comfort when bad things happen. And so this is the piece that you know, mitigates trauma, that buffers some of the traumatic effects. So what happens after it? For Carl, he's able to find connection and safety within the relationship of his caregivers, of his parents. And when things go really wrong or really scary or really bad, um, he's able to move through it because of the internal resources he's developed having had such caring and nurturing parents and he's also able to accept external resources outside of himself. So complex trauma which can include uh, developmental trauma, the, the trauma that happens during childhood, ongoing abuse, um, often by caregivers, betrayal trauma, the trauma that happens within relationship. One reason that it can have such an impact is because there isn't someone after the traumatic event to say and to name what happened, to help organize what happened, to provide comfort. And so those sorts of things, the very things that could mitigate the trauma are just not there because it's the very person who is supposed to care for them is hurting them. So that's one reason that it gets complicated and confusing, disorienting. So in the case of this group that's traveling, there's 
there are a few factors that researchers have found that help buffer the effects of traumatic events. I'm going to go back as far as 1947. So uh, American psychiatrists Cardiner and Spiegel found that, you know, soldiers returning from war were experiencing, you know, what we know today as PTSD, but they had all these other names for it. And they wanted to find what could help protect soldiers from developing these kinds of symptoms. And what they did find was there was one of the strongest protections um, against, you know, this, this ongoing, overwhelming terror of war was the degree of connectedness, of relatedness between the soldier, the unit, and their leader. Further research also showed that the strongest protection for soldiers uh, was this morale and leadership. And so when I think of The Walking Dead and this group that, you know, is traveling around trying to survive, their leader is Rick. He acts quickly. It's in the best interest of the group. He tries to do the right thing. His survival, their survival is just as important. So when we talk about the Walking Dead and the group that are staying together, we see that, you know, they witness each other's trauma. There's a place to talk about it. There's a place to acknowledge it. Um, they're experiencing it within leadership, within connection, and they're really trying to do the right thing for each other overall. So when we talk about complex trauma, like in the case of Carol, who is in a domestic battery situation for so many years, that she had no place to speak of it. There was no place to talk about it. She was in isolation. It was dangerous to talk about it. So that that really, um, you know, impacted the way in which she related to the world. She wasn't connected to others. She wasn't able to speak. She was frozen. Um, and so we see that compared to this group, this group who has witnessed and names things, um, they're able to move into action. They're able to be advocates for themselves. They're able to save themselves, to save others. They can move into action rather than a place of feeling frozen. Okay, so before moving on, I do want to share with you that I will be talking about season five. This is the most recent season of The Walking Dead. Okay, so in season five, there's a major transition that happens. And I kind of think of it as this moving out of a war zone into a place of safety, safety of some sort. Now, throughout the seasons, the group has traveled together, seeking out places that offer, you know, some sort of physical boundary between them and the zombies. Okay, so prior to this transition into a different kind of community, because this group has offered some sense of community, they meet the character of Aaron. And when they first meet him, they're they put all their weapons on him. Um, they don't know what he's up to. He could be dangerous, and they're not taking any chances. He explains that his job is to convince them to come back with him, to come home, to come to this community. He explains that if they join him in this community, that they'll be safe. He describes the boundaries of the walls, the 15-foot steel beams. He explains that nothing alive or dead gets through that security is important. So the group together has to navigate the information that Aaron is giving. And if it's, if it's actually safe, if it's actually truth, 
or if there's some sort of deception going on, meaning that Aaron and the so-called community is actually dangerous. So Rick is the skeptic. He's the one who is hypervigilant around all of this. And there are other members who start to question, you know, whether or not this could actually be safe. Could this be a good place? That this could also be a good idea. So in the end, they actually end up going to this community. And there's this, this scene where they've driven up to the wall of this place. It opens and they kind of all take a breath and prepare to walk in. So soon after entering this community, Rick meets Deanna, and she is clearly one of the leaders of this community. So she goes through this interview process of interviewing different members of the group individually, while also providing information about this community, how it came to be, um, and what it means to them today. So Deanna is able to say that she can read people really well. It's very clear that she's confident in this. And as we listen to Rick describe his view of humans, it's quite different from what Deanna has to say. We see as Rick talks more that his worldview has definitely changed. If we were to compare what his worldview of human nature was at the beginning of the show, it was probably quite different. So when trauma happens, whether it's in the context of a single event or within relationship, how could worldview not change? And we definitely see how Rick has been affected. And compared to Deanna, it's quite different than how she experiences other people. So all the different characters begin to settle into this community. And the first night, they actually decide to stay all together. They've been given the choices of different homes to begin you know, this new life in this community. And they choose to stay together. So they're still in this you know, hypervigilant state and this idea of safety in numbers. Uh, Rick, during the middle of the night, gets up and finds a weapon uh, you know, from the kitchen. And it's clear that he's very much in this state. And he has an interaction with one of the other characters who also can't sleep. So as they settle in, it's not like their nervous systems are you know, adjusting to this. They're still in a state of unbalance in their nervous systems. Okay, so on the first day, you know, the group members begin to explore their community. And Rick is walking down the street, and quickly that walk turns into a run. He has this moment of panic. Where are his children, Carl and Judith? And as he's running, he actually knocks over something. So after running into the sculpture, he has an exchange with the neighbor whose sculpture it is. And she says, oh, it was just a sculpture. She, said, she explains that it's an owl that she was working on. And then goes on to say that, you know, he didn't even get a good look at it. And he replies, I was in the middle of losing my mind. And I think this is a great representation of what it means to move into a place of safety where there are, your, the nervous system is still in a place of unbalance and there's re-experiencing and kind of the traumas are fragmented. So there isn't a place for him to really take in any learning. There really isn't a place to... Uh, even connect with creativity. So not viewing this piece of artwork, I think, very much represents still being in this kind of trauma state. And it seems that in this particular situation that the trigger that led to this panic, this need to protect, was that his children were not in his line of sight. 
out beyond the walls that's extremely dangerous. And as a parent, he's the one protecting them. He's part of their survival. And within this community, the dangers that were once there are no longer. And so what was once adaptive becomes more maladaptive. So his body does not need to respond in the way at this point that it did out in uh, the world beyond the walls. And so lastly, I want to talk about the character of Sasha because she really portrays well um, on the on the show what it looks like to have some of the post-traumatic stress symptoms. And we see very much in the beginning that she begins to isolate herself. So the group, you know, kind of sticks together and you see her go beyond the walls and come back. Um, she goes out and kind of externalizes the anger around the traumatic losses she's had, the visions, the intrusive thoughts continue to come up. You kind of hear, um, you know, fragments of what it sounded like to be around these zombies. And then she actually puts up a bunch of pictures um, in frames as target practice um, outside beyond the walls. And you hear her saying, come and get me really speaking to the zombies. So there's this externalizing of anger, there's this isolation going on. And then to do everyday things like attend a cocktail party. So this new community has a cocktail party for all these, you know, Rick and his group. And Sasha arrives, she already looks pretty agitated. Um, She's very, she seems angry. And she begins to, you know, enter into a conversation. You can see the agitation building. You can, um, you start to see some of her intrusive thoughts, flashbacks, like images, these fragments of the different traumas coming up in the room. And this person's trying to make small talk with her and asks Sasha what her favorite meal is. And, you know, says, you know, what's yours? And, um, the woman says, you know, whatever you want, I'm worried, I'm worried I'll make something you hate. So in this really simple exchange about food and somebody offering to make Sasha a meal, she lashes out and Sasha says, you're worried. That's what you're worried about. You know, the entire party can hear her. She storms out. Um, it's clear that, you know, she has a lot going on. So really all that she's seen, all that she's experienced, all these traumas that have been a part of her life over the past years just don't mesh well with this kind of normalcy, this transition back into a cocktail party. This hasn't been a part of her life and um, she's been in survival mode for so long that you know, having simple interactions with people, being in relationship with people, uh, just doesn't feel doesn't feel good to her. The people around her can't know what she went through. There's can be a feeling of feeling misunderstood. Um, so, in any case, I'm going to end there. Um, thanks for listening. You can go to onthebluecouch.com to follow On the Blue Couch on Twitter or Facebook. Um, Also, if you'd like to be a contributor or you have any topics you'd like to hear more about, please complete the contributor form. Uh, Until next time.